Hey, everybody. For those of you who are watching this on a playback, you may recognize some of this uh, PowerPoint. I believe, I did not check, but I'm pretty sure I had used this as a base for another research review. I did one, something called the, the science of muscle or something like that. But I had so much information in this one already, this PowerPoint uh, for a full weekend uh, workshop that I did in Italy a couple years ago. So uh, you'll you'll see some of that information here, but I completely rearranged some things. I added some things um, as time does. You have you have a chance to edit and uh, catch up on some other things that are maybe of more interest. So what today is about, it's going to be an overview of all of the variables that go into how you would select your method for training. Um, things like frequency, duration, intensity, load. And if you are in this game, if you have a PhD in exercise science, you're probably sick of these things because for 40 or 50 years, these are the same questions people have. But there has been a substantial amount of research in the last 10 years that I think really uh, it, it opens the door to some new questions, some new nuance. But I think it, it also... Uh, you know, closes the door on a lot of things. You're, you're going to see some parameters here where it's like, okay, between this and this, that's where the action is. And where you want to change those variables for yourself or adjust them really comes down to what you're training for and, and how your body may react. That's going to be one of my biggest themes through today is talking about how we all even perceive intensity and some of these variables differently. So the first thing uh, to, to go through is just a little bit of a survey of what we're going to chat about. I would love to spend two full hours just on functional anatomy. That, that, it's so important because the biomechanics by which you govern your movement is everything. I mean, you, you, you when you're talking about load and frequency and intensity and so forth, if you're not doing the movement as you want – and remember that we either train with movement specificity or muscle specificity. If I'm doing a squat, for example, I'm not worried about, you know, how do my quads feel? Are my quads, you know, uh, feeling this? Am I, am I really hitting my vastus lateralis? You should not, it's too complex of a movement. You should not be thinking about that. And, and even people who do, people who say, well, man, if I, you know, put my heels up on five pound plates and I, externally rotate a little bit there or, or bring my knees in, you know, an extra four degrees that I can really feel my quads. If you're using a compound movement like the squat for that, A, you're probably going to hurt yourself in the long-term orthopedically because now you're putting your hips and your knees into positions that they just don't naturally take that kind of load. Uh, something as simple as a hinge joint like your knee, when you are you know, you know, forcing a little torsion through there. Maybe you know you're you're getting your knees out over your toes because your your you know feet are a little bit too too far together. Maybe that's forcing your hips into an antiverted position, and now your external rotators are kind of stretched out, and they're not at a, at a mechanical advantage. You start doing things to your joints, even your SI joints, lumbar spine, that you start grooving in those patterns and now you're squatting 200 pounds, 400 pounds, 600 pounds, you're going to do some damage and you could have acute injuries and, and you could have chronic joint degeneration and so forth. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to definitely talk about some functional anatomy, but it's nothing we can really cover exhaustively, but just pay attention to that being the foundation. Then of course you have just the normal number one bedrock principle of training, which is adaptation. You're causing through a stimulus, your body to react by getting stronger. Uh, there, there are things like metabolic disruption that we'll talk about and mechanical disruption. So your, your, the training response creates an adaptation that you have to manage. This is going to be probably the, the second biggest point I hammer home, especially when I get to a graphic that shows recovery and super compensation and all that. Then in the middle here, from volume to intensity – you have all of the variables that you typically would think about in terms of, um, you know, the, the controllables. So how, you know, how many sets am I going to do? How often am I going to train? How heavy am I going to train? Um, how long is the workout going to be? How do I perceive that intensity? 
Then at the very end, some application, we'll talk about periodization models and training design. And again, it all of this, all of this is different depending on your goals. So um, you, you have to understand my bias. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. I, I do have a personal bias, yet I also have an academic understanding of, of the global ranges of which we can train. So I was always a bodybuilder. That was my goal. I was never a power lifter. I was never using, well, I guess in my teenage years, I was using training to become a better athlete, a baseball player. But once I got beyond that and I was in college and beyond, it was all about bodybuilding. And so I would use tools of pure strength training to allow myself to get bigger muscle tissue, you know, more hypertrophy. I would train a power lifter much different than I would have trained myself. I would train an athlete much different than I would train myself. I had a 15-year-old basketball player in my facility this morning, and I'm going to maybe bring him up as an example of how training variables could change from um, an athlete to a physique sport person, even, even in physique sport, a bikini competitor to a male bodybuilder, et cetera. So of all of these variables I'm going to talk about, keep in mind that there is nuance and some ranges through which you can take each variable for whatever your goals are. I'm, I'm going to try to to show you maximum results, but but when I say maximum results, I really am talking about my bias for hypertrophy, which by the way, um, I'm going to also a little show and tell. Um, I, I've got a stack of books here that, that I think show you kind of the, the scope of what you can learn. Uh, Brad Schoenfeld, big name in our industry, his his textbook, The Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. Hypertrophy. This is not a general exercise science textbook. It's not the science and development of strength. It's not the science and development of athletic performance. It's hypertrophy. Now, that said, uh, it's, it's an incredibly well laid out text. And the first couple chapters really is phenomenal for a layperson on general exercise science, how muscle tissue works and you know all these variables I'm talking about. So if you really want to great, even if you're not in academic and exercise science, but you want to know this stuff, this is a really, really good book, very up to date as well. Um, but that's that's hypertrophy. You have to think that that's just one part of training, hypertrophy. Then you have things like this. Here is the science and practice of strength training. So this has nothing to do with how big your biceps are. This is just, you know, pure strength. Very, very different. Overlap, of course. You you need some strength to have good responses in hypertrophy. And, and even if you train with pure strength, you're going to get some hypertrophy. Um, but in some athletes, for example, so now I'm going to get into, um, doo -doo 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 -doo. Let, let's say this, like functional training. So advances in functional training, Michael Boyle, just a, a godfather in this whole thing, uh, in functional training. Um, and here's one from Gray Cook, a physical therapist called movement, functional movement systems. So now you're getting into physiology and movement. So this is more for athletic performance, you know, very, very different ways to train depending on what your goals are. But one of the things that I'm going to come back to is a starting point. Well, and then you can get into even, sorry, I keep interrupting myself, you know, very, very specific things. So then you have somebody like Brett Contreras, which is all about the hips and the low back and the glute. So, you know, a massive book on just glute training. Uh, again, some great exercise science stuff in here, but a very, very specific goal. Um, you know, obviously very, very advanced. But but two of the things that I want to uh, to talk about next is the fact that periodization, meaning how you manipulate these variables over time, is massively important. William Kramer, another foundational figure in the 70s and 80s of exercise science. Nobody would be graduating with degrees in exercise science if it was not for Bill Kramer, uh, founder and first president of even the NSCA. So this, this goes into the classic athletic training models of periodization, like doing three months of power work, three months of strength work, you know, you know kind of preseason work, and then you know maintenance for an athlete, if you're a college volleyball player or something. 
But they're really talking here. He he brought to the table a lot of the concepts of undulating or nonlinear periodization that I still base a lot of my training on where, where that I program for clients, which takes all these variables and says, okay, if you're manipulating frequency, load, duration, volume, et cetera, you don't do that like you would an athlete in big three-month you know, blocks of time. You may need to do that in, in micro and meso cycles. So uh, you could have a cycle within the same week and then alternating weeks, a two-week cycle that repeats. You create all these undulating cycles within a big training block that could be two, three, or four months. But let's go back very quickly to the beginning of it all, which is functional anatomy and how you move. Um, at our at our uh, training camp this weekend, Advanced Training Fantasy Camp, I gave everybody a copy of this book, which is Functional Training Anatomy, a little bit different than Functional Anatomy, but it gives a really good look at, you know, four different movements, what muscle do you use and why? Um, when you look at origins and insertions of muscle, I'm going to give you a quick example. This this is just really, really simple, but your biceps, two distinct parts of one muscle. So you think the biceps job is to just flex the elbow, right? And, and that's true. That's its primary um, you know, functional movement. But it, it inserts on the ulna in, in the elbow, so it actually also supinates. So if I want to maximally contract my bicep, if I put an EMG on my bicep and I want maximum force production, I would not only have to flex the elbow, I have to know that I'm going to be supinating it as well because at the elbow joint, that's an important part of that movement. The long head of the bicep actually originates on the, the scapula, so kind of underneath and behind the shoulder joint. The short head originates on the humerus itself. So its action is just at the elbow. The long head assists in flexing or elevating the shoulder forward a bit. So if anybody's ever said, hey, when you're doing curls, if you have any shoulder movement, that's bad. That's, quote, cheating. Well, if you really want maximum contraction in the bicep, you would be flexing the elbow, supinating the elbow, and at the top of the motion, at least initiating that, that shoulder elevation, that humerus or upper arm elevation, because that's what the muscle does. So in a super, super, super simple muscle like the bicep, all of a sudden you can see, wow, there's a whole lot going on there. And that's how I can create maximum force. But again, remember movement specificity and muscle specificity. If I'm doing a squat or a deadlift or a hack squat or a Romanian stiff-legged deadlift or something like that, even a glute, you know, hip thrust, there's a lot going into that. You're not just isolating one muscle. So you want your biomechanics to, first of all, be safe and profoundly efficient, but it's all about the movement getting stronger and you're selecting that movement and you're selecting the way you do that movement. So I could do, for example, a barbell bench press, a dumbbell bench press. I could go on an incline or decline by a little bit. I'm going to go through the proper shoulder mechanics to maximally hit that muscle safely with the position that I can force the best contraction. I'm not so worried about the individual muscle unless I'm a bodybuilder and I'm doing more of an isolated movement. Some movements are a very, very conducive for isolation and feel in getting that maximum force production. Some of them is just about the safety of the movement going through an, a safe overload, whatever rep range you're targeting and, and effort level. But at the same time, you are you're not necessarily thinking about a specific muscle contraction. You're trusting that the movement itself is going to provide the overload stimulus to target that muscle. For example, let's go to the chest. So the pec major, you have the clavicular portion that originates on about the, you know, medial third of the clavicle. So its fibers are kind of running down to the common tendon then the sternal part is fanning up toward that tendon. So a lot of people talk about the upper chest and the lower chest. 
well, again, it, it's all one muscle, but with different origin points, the, the fiber stimulus can be different. So here's an example. Um, I asked this at our fantasy camp. You know, if you want to target your upper chest, you want a thicker, better upper chest, what exercise would you do? And of course, everybody thinks, well, incline, you know, incline flies, incline press, that it does that. But with EMG studies, we know that a decline press activates the upper chest more than any other exercise, completely counterintuitive to most people. But when you look at the fact that the functional anatomy, going back to something like this, having a resource that shows you the origins, the insertions, the mechanism of action, you would find out that the close pack position of that joint, of that muscle, where you contract it with the greatest intensity and the greatest mechanical advantage is horizontal adduction with a little bit of internal rotation because the way where the tendon inserts on the humerus internally rotates the humerus. And it's about at a 30 degree angle downward. So if a flat bench press is, let's say neutral, then about 30 degrees lower than that. So kind of like a cable crossover or a decline bench, you can even feel that. Put your hand on your upper chest and try and do an incline. And you feel like, man, I, I can't even contract it. Like I, there, there is there is no way I can even contract my upper chest in that position because the fibers are now in a slackened position. And so you've completely taken them out. But down here in that 30 degrees post neutral, you know, towards your feet, with internal rotation and horizontal adduction. So now you're doing a, you're mimicking a, a decline. You're like, wow, like I can really feel that contract hard and EMGs confirm that's where you can produce the most force. Another example I like to teach people about functional anatomy is go up to somebody and say, and shake their hand and say, okay, I want you to shake my hand and now squeeze it as hard as you possibly can. And of course they'll just vice down on your hand and then notice where their wrist is. Their wrist will always be in a little bit of flexion because that's the closed pack position where you get the most mechanical advantage from your wrist flexors, you know, through the common tendon here. So then do this. Now put their wrist all the way into maximum flexion, still holding your hand and say, okay, now squeeze. And they, they can't even squeeze with a pound of pressure. Same action, same muscle, but you've changed the angle of the joint so that now the muscle tissue is in a slackened position. Go to extreme extension, same thing. It's like I can barely squeeze because now the muscle tissue is too, too stretched. It's too lengthened. So we're going to talk about that here now as we get into the, the actual anatomy and physiology of a muscle contraction and why that's so important. I'm going to skip a lot of stuff, but I'm going to at least mention it. Um, in case you have interest and you can look this up, you, you have to understand first that every single muscle fiber we're looking at is like a thread or a strand of spaghetti, right? And yet there are hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of those individual muscle fibers in every muscle. We'll get to some graphics on that. Those muscles just do one thing, those fibers, they just shorten. They don't, you know, the complexity of movement you have is because you have so many different muscles that do different things. So motor units, the nerves that come out of your spinal cord and then start branching off into different muscles, you typically have one muscle innervated by one major nerve. And then that major nerve bifurcates into smaller nerves that control bundles of muscle fiber. So let's say in my calves, my gastrox, very simple plantar flexing muscle and joint in the ankle, even though it does cross the knee joint. So it's also a weak knee flexor, two joint muscle. Um, you know, its job is just to plantar flex and for locomotion, for, for heel strike and, and walking and jumping and so forth. So one motor unit, one, one small nerve off the main nerve may control a hundred thousand muscle fibers. Because when they contract, they just have one job, plantar flex the foot. Your eyeball may have 10 muscle fibers per small nerve, very intricate, fine motor units. I should actually know those numbers. I'm, I'm probably off on that, but by scale, it, it's that different. 
So your job per muscle when you're training muscle and not movement is to know how can I put that joint or joints, those joints in the right position to get maximum mechanical advantage, maximum force production. And then how do I do that? How do I contract those not only with the most force, but now I have to think about how much do they contract, how, how, um, how they do that in synchrony, uh, which, which is also different than most people think. So when you get into recruitment, which is how we recruit those, uh, one thing that you would learn in physiology 101 is that let's say I'm doing a bicep curl with this ink pen and I could do this all day. I could do a million reps. All of those motor units, let's say I have the musculocutaneous nerve, which comes out of my brachial plexus, I think at C5. So that one nerve comes down and innervates the bicep, but then it branches off into all these different motor units. Let's say I have a hundred motor units. So all of the muscle fiber, let's say, let's say there are a hundred motor units with a thousand muscle fibers per motor unit. <clears throat> so I have a hundred thousand muscle fibers. All of them aren't contracting when I curl this ink pen lightly, like you would think, well, the muscle, you know, I can feel it kind of contracting and it, you know, muscle feels like it's getting denser and shorter. And um, so all of my muscle is contracting just lightly, quote unquote, but it's not happening. You only recruit in an all or none way, the amount of motor units that you need to contract the force that you need, your, your body, your nervous system automatically calibrates for that. If I grabbed a 60 pound dumbbell, now all of a sudden I need all of those motor units because I can only do that one or two times. So now I'm getting all those motor units for maximum contraction. And now I'm running out of energy. And so I'm going to back up here. Uh, motor unit physiology, how the nerves actually recruit uh, to create that force. But then the recruitment itself has to go through energy system requirements. What's the energy that those muscle fibers are using uh, to, to create that force? So another place that you're going to see a, a, a bifurcation in, in the way we describe this is, I, I've already mentioned this once, we have mechanical disruption and we have metabolic disruption. So mechanical is that just what it sounds like. The force we're putting through that muscle fiber it's hard and your body wants to adapt when it, if it thinks it's going to encounter this load in the future, it wants to prepare. So it starts uh, laying down new amino acid, you know, content into that muscle fiber, making the, the little filaments thicker and stronger. Uh, but you also have to be ready to support that with energy. So there are different energy systems. You probably heard of aerobic and anaerobic, maybe even glycolytic. But let, let's stay with the muscle fiber for just a second in terms of the mechanical aspect. So I already talked about the origin and insertion of muscles and their different actions and how we're creating force vectors and one joint or two joint, all of that kind of stuff. Um, the motor units, if, if you look at the very top of this graphic, I'm not sure if you can see my cursor, but this very, very top thing, this is kind of showing an action potential. So at a nerve junction, you have this, this chemical bridge between the central nervous system saying, hey, I need you, the muscle tissue, to contract. So that's an all or none phenomena. And so the, the nerves are, you know, just basically on guard, so to speak. They're calibrating what the body needs. And your, your central nervous system will start recruiting new motor units as they are needed. Part of that equation is the calibration of the force need, how heavy that weight is. But then as you're doing those reps or any daily activity, you're using energy. You start by using ATP, the most basic short-term unit of energy. Then you can start using glucose. So you get into the glycolytic energy system. Then if, if you're doing it for a prolonged period of time, your body runs out of even that or it can't resynthesize it as quickly, ATP or glucose. So it starts using oxygen and you go into oxygen depth. That's that's an aerobic energy. So so look look how far we've gone so far. Down to the single little nerve synapse, and we're we're getting these signals to contract a muscle fiber. 
And so this is the the little arm of an actin and myosin filament acting on each other, which I'll show you in more detail in a minute. And that's happening in these little sarcomeres or these bands within a single muscle fiber. And all of those bundles of muscle fiber make up an entire muscle. Like here, you're kind of showing maybe a bicep. So this is in a relaxed state or elongated. And then in the contracted state, they're simply crunching together. So anybody who doesn't or, or hasn't had experience academically learning this kind of cellular um, physiology, th this should be somewhat fascinating in, in this most simple regard, which I'm going to show here. Think of, again, that muscle fiber, like a piece of thread or spaghetti. And now that's not just representative of one muscle fiber, but that muscle fiber is, is cut into small sections. These sections are individual bands within the muscle fiber. And you see this nice thick purple here, the, the myosin, and then here's the actin, the thinner filament up here. This is how your muscle tissue can expand or lengthen and contract. So these little things, classically, everybody in physiology calls these like oars, like imagine little oars in the water. This is a, a row, you know, boat kind of thing. And then these little myosin heads reach out and they grab the actin, that filament, and they literally just pull it forward like oars in water. And they, 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 in sequentially, once they pull and, and bring that actin myosin or actin filament forward, then it has to reach out and grab another section and they just ratchet down like that. It's a very mechanical process. So all of these happening at one time, the entire length of that muscle fiber, every one of those little sections or sarcomeres are just simply squishing together. So you're thinking, man, I'm a bikini competitor and I want big belts. I need my shoulders to grow. What exercise is great for shoulders? Well, again, Look, look how multi-dimensional your shoulder is. These anterior muscle fibers are kind of going this direction. Then on the medial head, they're going down. And on the posterior delt, they're coming around the other way, very opposite of the anterior. So somebody might say, well, a, a shoulder press, you know, that's kind of the squat for the shoulders. Like that hits everything. Does it? Because when I push up, my posterior delts are almost lengthening. Like there's, they're, they're going to a more slackened position. It's great exercise for my anterior delts because every single one of these muscle fibers, they just shorten. That's their job. Right up here, this muscle fiber isn't thinking anthropomorphically, um, you know, hey, I need to move this barbell over my head. All it does is shorten, just shorten, shorten, shorten. This one over here, shorten, shorten. So thousands of muscle fibers all just shortening being called upon how we are moving them. So it comes back to functional anatomy. So it's our job to think, okay, this exercise does this. The, the only muscle fiber really working in that muscle I'm targeting is this. So I may need another exercise to really hit the backside. How would I create the most tension in my rear delts? Well, that might be a rear fly uh, or a rear shoulder lateral. Now that's maximally contracting, but now my anterior delt is totally in a slack position. It's not working at all. Um, think of the overlap because in a bench press, you know what what's working in my shoulder? I, I think I'm targeting just my chest, but look what I'm doing. I'm maximally contracting the anterior delt sarcomeres, the muscle fibers. And when I'm doing a 300-pound low cable row or a 60-pound one-arm dumbbell row, I'm certainly trying to target my lats and maybe my rhomboids and so forth, all the scapular muscles. But you better believe your rear delt is involved in that. Those muscle fibers are shortening maximally. So every exercise you're doing, because you're thinking of movement, also has a muscle part of that. And I think you need to realize both are happening and that's part of your exercise selection process. So again, all of that cellular stuff, muscle fibers being completely stripped down to the sarcomeres and the Z lines and the actin and myosin filaments, 
you're you're looking at the origin and insertion points here. Like where is look at this tricep. Like look at the the long head and the short head and so forth. And and how do I change the the mechanics of that exercise or choose another exercise altogether to emphasize the muscle I want. So kind of like the biceps, the triceps, three, obviously, try, three heads of the tricep, one of the tendons, the long head, crosses the shoulder joint as well. And so you really don't feel that one unless you have a the, your triceps in a stretched position. If you're just doing close grip, um, you know, any kind of grip, actually, like standing cable press down, you're really going to work on that that lateral head first, the shorter part of the muscle. I need, since now the long head of the tricep in that position is in a slackened position because it originates also back on the scapula, I need to put it in a stretched position to feel that. So now all of a sudden I'm doing a standing cable, you know, behind the head raise or what's considered an overhead tricep extension or French press. Um, even on the bench, you, using... Some people call it a, a skull crusher because they stop at their forehead. Total waste of an exercise, in my opinion, because if you come down here and then you allow yourself to come around your head, now you're really engaging the long head of the tricep and thinking of it as a multi-joint movement. You're coming all the way up, so you're, you're stretching the long head and then you're contracting around so that all three parts of the tricep get maximally contracted through that motion. Because you're not just extending the elbow at that point, you're extending the elbow, but you're also flexing and extending the shoulder joint within the range of motion where that long head of the tricep is most impacted. So functional anatomy, it's it's literally, you know, everything. Then there's adaptation, which is the foundation of growth or strength or any kind of a movement pattern you're trying to reinforce. You're, you're making your body adapt to new stimuli, to new loads, to get to a point where your body has to go in the direction you want, which is more hypertrophy, more strength, more synergistic functional movement patterns. Remember those three types of things that you could be training for. But it's, it's everything that we just described, which is the literal physiology down to the muscle fiber level. But now we have more considerations. This just gets more and more complex. You have different muscle fiber types, fast twitch, slow twitch, and intermediate. Some newer resources talk about a fourth kind of dividing intermediate into two categories as well. But um, slow twitch, fast twitch. Fast twitch is something that evolutionarily you just need for shorter bursts of energy, like my biceps. I'm going to carry something or I'm going to pick something up. But skeletally, my back muscle and my legs are constantly engaged for posture, for movement and so forth. So those are a little bit more oxygen rich and they they have more slow twitch muscle fiber. Those those are there to, to carry out specific purposes with endurance type contraction over time. So just knowing that a white or fast twitch muscle fiber, they call it white because skeletally there's less oxygen there. And it literally in a cadaver, it's a lighter color. Um, fast twitch muscle fiber cross-sectionally has more potential for hypertrophy and strength. So training with power or lower rep ranges where you're literally working toward strength can help with hypertrophy. But in any given muscle, even when you look at, well, this is dominantly fast twitch versus slow twitch, those dominances are not that different. Maybe 60, 40, 45, 55. It's not like there's one muscle group that's 100% fast twitch versus slow twitch. So every single muscle group may have a uh, an aptitude, so to speak, for greater training potential, either from a fast twitch mechanism or slow twitch but you really need both throughout if your goal is hypertrophy. Uh, training my athlete this morning, who is a basketball player, size for his position, he's a, he's a shooting guard, would only slow him down. If I put 20 pounds of muscle on him, he's a slower basketball player. But I want maximum strength, 
And so how I manipulate these variables are to get him as strong as possible. And I know this is anathema to most of you listening here as in physique sport. I I don't want him big. Like getting him big would be a deficit. Now, when he moves up to college ball and if he had the opportunity to play in the pros, you know, comparing his body and body type to different athletes he may be competing against a coach may say, look, dude, we need 20 more pounds on you. Like we need that physical size. I don't care if it slows you down a little bit. You're just getting pushed around in the paint. You, you know, you, you need that size. So, you know, goals can change, but I, I would, somebody who is in the, the mode for pure strength, we need to do things differently. Even a power lifter. Um, it's not so much that they care that they're big. I mean, that doesn't matter. Some elastic energy needs and so forth may dictate that size would help. But if they're monkeying around with, hey, I'm going to make sure I do 16 sets of calf work and I'm going to work on my forearms and my biceps, when you don't need those for squat, bench, and deadlift, that could be a waste of recovery and energy. So when we get into energy systems and recovery, maybe that's just counterproductive. They need that that training stimulus and that recovery time to go toward the movements that they really need. So again, we're going to manipulate these variables you know, based on how we want. So just another little um, re repeat of what I said. We're, we're always looking at mechanical tension. We're looking at metabolic stress. We're going to talk about that next. And then you can even get into a point of muscle damage, which I'm not going to, I'll just mention briefly. You can train so hard and so aggressively um, that you really damage muscle tissue. Like you, you create scar tissue internally and A, that's not always to your advantage, but B, there's some evidence that that may cause hyperplasia where you create new parallel muscle fibers to support that. Almost like in your coronary artery vessels, if you're getting blockage and you know you only have these four blood vessels to support your heart muscle, sometimes your body will start creating a tangent bypass. It literally, you'll, you'll start creating your own bypass without a surgeon doing it. So don't worry about that. That's to be continued with, with modern research and so forth, but we're looking at mechanical and metabolic stress. Um, and, and Kevin, you're right. Like fast and slow twitch muscle fiber dominance and ratios are definitely genetic. That's what make, make some athletes better at some sports than others. Um, your, your predisposition to being a great endurance athlete or a great speed or strength athlete for sure. So yeah, you can't, you can't change that except those intermediate muscle fibers, almost like satellite cells, based on the training stimulus, they really can kind of start acting like fast or slow twitch. So you do have a lot of gray area where you can affect that based on how you train. Um, I mentioned Dr. Kramer, again, kind of the founder of modern exercise science. I'm not going to read. He's got this great definition of, of why exercise science is exercise science, like all the variables, everything I'm describing here, he says in this one example of what exercise science and, and just the, the pursuit of muscle change is. So just remember that name if you ever want to look up some great classic material. So let's go through these actual variables. We, we, we're 40 minutes in, and all we've talked about is adaptation and functional anatomy. So how you're going to move and then what's happening under the surface, what's happening at that muscle cell. Now we're going to talk about all the variables, volume, intensity, duration, frequency, et cetera. So we're going to have to blast through this. And then in the next research reviews, I'll try to show some very specific studies that talk about these, these variables individually. So volume. Um, here's what we know about volume so far. And this is where Schoenfeld, he has a classic, I think, 2018 uh, definitive literature review on must on, on frequency of training and volume of training. So we know that doing three sets of one exercise for one movement is better than doing one. We know that five sets gets you more than doing three sets, but eventually there's a point where more is not better. And so what you're looking for is the minimum viable dose or minimum effective dose um, that you need to create that adaptive stimulus to then be able to recover so you can do it again. 
And this is this is gonna I'm gonna take you to this graphic that shows everything you need to know about all these variables in one place. It's a great summary graphic. But with volume, think of it this way. Um, I have currently a pec tear, a subscapularis tear, and maybe a tricep tendon tear. And I did this about a month ago. And so on day one, acute pec tear, like I'm just holding my arm like this. I can't even lay down without holding my arm because the muscle fiber is just torn and it's just, just a wreck. So there's some healing going on. My left side, totally fine. 42 years of training, super strong. I, I still want to train, but now this all of a sudden is like I've never trained before, even worse. So on day one of my training after this injury, guess what I'm doing? I'm doing one-arm push-ups against an incline wedge. And this arm is just like tucked away because I can't train it. Then within a couple of days, I can start putting a little pressure on that side. So now I'm getting 90% of the force on this side and I'm barely putting any here. Now I'm to the point where I'm laying down on a flat bench with a 50 pound dumbbell in this hand and a five pound dumbbell on this hand. With it, I, I can normally, let's say do a hundred pound dumbbell press. If I'm doing a hundred pounds of work through every rep and I'm doing multiple sets, three sets is greater than one set, five sets greater than three, then that's going to create some mechanical disruption. The actin, myosin, filaments are getting inflamed and fatigued, and there's metabolic disruption. I've used up all my glycogen. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in a state of where I need to recover that, synthesize new glycogen, and so it takes days to recover. Could take two days, three days. Could take five to seven days, depending on how much metabolic and mechanical disruption is there. This side. I'm barely doing five pounds. I could do five pounds probably three times a day. Think of it as a physical therapy model. If if I'm a physical therapist and I'm going up to somebody's room in a hospital and they just had knee surgery, the most appropriate thing to do may be a couple sets of just knee extension. Let's just activate the vastus medialis a little bit not even really any active range of motion, maybe just isometrics, I could tell that patient, you know what, do a set of 10 of these every hour. So I'm now telling somebody to, quote, train a specific muscle group through a specific movement. And I'm saying the frequency and the volume can be up to training every single hour. Obviously, you're not going to do that with a power lifter who's squatting 800 pounds. You wouldn't say go squat 800 pounds for a set of 10 every hour, every day. But we're not doing that much mechanical or metabolic disruption in that rehabilitative state. So think of even just a new lifter, somebody who's 15 years old lifting weights for the first time, as my client I'm using as a metaphor here. Um you know, first time he came in and trained, I had to just make sure the biomechanics were safe and sound. I had to teach him how to squat with a PVC bar. Here's a bar that literally weighs nothing. Put that on your back and let's learn how to do this motion. And I guarantee he was sore because we might have done five or 10 sets of 20 reps. And even with his body weight with no additional weight, that was more metabolic and mechanical disruption than he's used to. Now, today, he was using 155 pounds on his back, and so we're doing fewer reps. We don't need as many sets. We're getting into new territory as an athlete training with strength, and now he doesn't need to train for another few days, which we'll get into next, the frequency. So the total volume that we're doing is affected by the total load in the amount of disruption. So when you look at all of this combined, all kinds of studies, studies with men versus women, untrained versus trained, equating for volume per workout, et cetera, so many ways you can study this, and they have. That's why Schoenfeld's book is very useful. As a literature review, looking at all of that research, it's now the recommended uh, interpretation 
that 10 to 20 working sets where you're really getting into metabolic and or mechanical disruption per week appears to be a good recommendation for hypertrophy-related goals. More advanced lifters, here's a huge caveat, more advanced lifters see... Uh, you know, seem to require greater volumes to maximize protein accretion. So somebody like myself, who's been training for 40 some years, and my strength is greater than this 15 year old client, I'm going to need more sets, more volume, and I might even need more frequency, but it depends on how we recover. So keep in mind, 10 to 20 work sets per muscle group or per movement per week. Now, how do we set that out? How do we, how do we set up frequency? Uh, there's always been kind of a one or two model in AB binary, and it's either train each muscle group once a week, or sometimes people would train them twice a week, you know, through the eighties, nineties, et cetera. That was, that was all there kind of was. Then all of a sudden people got sophisticated because they wanted more um, specificity for different muscles. So they're trying to train maybe three times a week, four times a week, maybe periodizing the emphasis each time. So training with a little bit of a strength emphasis this time, and then two days later, maybe different exercises. So you're training different parts of the muscle, you know, and, and just trying to trying to pack in as much as possible. And you get into some gray areas, and this is where I'm going to come down to. It really depends on how you perceive exertion and how your body recovers. But again, the, the level of tissue disruption, the amount of muscle tissue actually being used that then has to recover, and your normal genetic ability to recover, plus your goals, all of this can dictate frequency. Uh, one of our coaches that was here for our fantasy camp this weekend, he said when he became an IFBB pro – you know, the judges said, well, you really could use some more shoulder work. And he he found that training up to four times a week, training his shoulders, literally every other day, he seemed for at least a short period of time to make some progress. But I would argue, and, and I mean, he affirmed this, that he wasn't doing a full shoulder workout each time. You know, it may be more anterior delt focused one time and then two days later it's rear delt and then maybe it's whole delt and then maybe there's one kind of strength day that week where he's doing a lot of heavy shoulder presses. You can't completely obliterate that muscle that frequently and expect to recover. It just won't happen. So also uh, through some of Schoenfeld and other people's work, they're finding that some people do well training a muscle like if you've got those 20 sets, 20 work sets, you've decided that's the sweet spot for you. Could you do one workout with all 20 sets? Sure. Could you do two workouts with 10 sets each? Sure. You know, could you do three with, you know, spreading out that load, 20 sets over those three workouts? Sure. But they, they say most people find that working a muscle group twice a week with, with some, changing of the emphasis, uh, you know, one strength and one, maybe a little bit more intensity and, and higher rep related could be a factor. But again, think of somebody who's training aggressively with a lot of strength. So back up a slide or two. And Brad also said that some and more advanced lifters need to go deeper into that work per, per workout than other people. So for example, Austin Kiergaard and I, our dietetics director, we trained legs together and he did his mobility warm up, all his functional stuff. And then his first set of squats, he put on 135 pounds, did it five perfect reps, put on 225, five perfect reps, 315, five reps, 405, five reps. So now he's up to 405 and he's only done 20 reps. His whole workout so far is just 20 reps. And you would say that's that's not even working sets yet. He's not even near failure. So now you've got this 20 set rule. You know, now we've got 20 sets to play with. He's warmed up and he's already that heavy in the workout. All he did for squats, because he's he's in this routine right now where he wants to get 10 reps before he moves up, very classic pyramiding. He put on 435, I believe. And he went to failure. He went to absolute total failure with eight reps. So that was one working set, but he's had that much load on his back already. 
Then we went to Bulgarian split squats and he went right for 80. So he's got 80 pound dumbbell in each hand and we're doing sets of 10, which is brutal. I mean, now this is difficult. And, um, you know, I'm not even using that much weight. I'm using about half of what he was using, but we did about four sets and those were total working sets. Then we went to extensions and again, we're already warmed up. So we're plowing right into working sets and we did about four there. So let's say four, four and one or two. So that's, that's about, I mean, it's a difficult workout and yet that was only about 10 working sets. So would he be recovered enough in four or five days to do that again? Sure. Um, somebody like me, I've been training about twice as long as him. And my goals aren't necessarily at this point, maximum hypertrophy, not my total number one priority. Um, I may say, I'm going to take an extra day or two to recover because I just don't need to thrash myself that much. I don't need to risk injury. I'm not willing to risk injury as he might be. But let, let me get back into some frequency. Um, I'm going to show you just a little bit of some of the fringe, you know, parts where you can make these decisions for yourself. So in this particular study, they trained three times a week, three sets versus one time a week, nine sets. So they broke up the work, same amount of work. They each got nine sets, but you either train three times a week or once a week, 19 subjects, eight weeks, all muscle groups. They, they both gained about the same amount of lean body mass. Um, the results show total work mattered, not frequency. And you see that a lot in, in this kind of research. That's why it's pretty dogmatic that total work has a threshold, yet you can split it up a little bit. But look at training uh, twice a week versus one or three, or, you know, going from two to two to one. So somebody who's used to working out twice a week, I'm doing legs twice a week, and they're now asked to train once a week. Somebody who trains three times a week, that same body part, legs, now they're asked to do it two times a week. So they're reducing it. So we're taking everybody, here's what you've been training, and now we're going to make you reduce. It's equated for, for total work, but 60 subjects, 12 weeks, and um, there was no strength lost. So these people in 12 weeks, you can read this a couple of different ways. If you love to train, you just want to be in the gym all the time. Well, you could train a little bit more, spread that volume out so you get to train more often and you're doing okay. But you can also reduce it, train a little bit more in that workout, train a little bit deeper into that movement, and you're not going to – I mean, the benefit's the same. You're going to get the same lean body mass and the same strength. So you can look at it two different ways. And I would argue, and I know Schoenfeld agrees, and so do people like Mike Isertel and Greg Knuckles. A lot of their mentality is is aligned with mine in that as you get stronger, you get more advanced as a lifter. You've got to go deeper to those workouts to get the same stimulus, to, to get to that level of metabolic and mechanical disruption. And therefore, you need more time to recover. So bigger lifts, harder lifts, but then more time to recover. You don't have to. All of those advanced lifters could back up a little bit, train a little bit lighter, have a few more reps in reserve, a few less work sets per session, and, and just be in the gym more often, and that would be fine as well. So again, I'm not going to go through all of these studies. This is this is where we may break it out into future uh, research reviews, but but very similarly, um, you know, you can you can train less or more depending, you know, what you'd like to do. Total volume is is more important. So load, how heavy am I going to lift? The classic model is one rep to five is heavy heavy training. That's like power. Think think of power. How many motor units am I recruiting all at one time to maximally display my ability to create power, to create force in those sarcomeres? Then strength, and that's really kind of one to two reps. When you get into maybe three to six, now you're in strength. You know, I'm strong enough to do this, but I'm also displaying my ability to recover and resynthesize those metabolites to, to keep that energy going but it's still a low enough rep range that we're going to call that strength. Then you get into hypertrophy work, which is in the eight to 12. And I'm happy to say most current exercise science researchers are showing that even up to 20 to 30 reps per set, especially in the bigger, denser, larger muscle groups, 
that happen to also be a little bit more slow twitch, a little bit more postural and, and oxygen enriched. Um, you know, but we're talking failure in those rep ranges. You're not just doing a light warm up set of 20 and you could have done a hundred. It's literally making yourself fail in those upper rep ranges that there's some untapped potential for a lot of people because the classic model is just to pyramid our way up, you know, warm up, warm up, warm up, kind of like Austin did five reps here, five reps here. I'm just kind of adding weight. None of those sets were difficult until he was at four Oh five. And, but what if he had been doing 10 reps? What if he stopped at two twenty-five and he did five sets of 20? That's a whole different workout, whole different workout. Cause you're changing the load to make sure that you are failing in a different rep range which requires different types of metabolic and mechanical stress. So a medium load, as I just described, seems to induce both met metabolic and mechani mechanical disruption for the best result. But a wide spectrum is recommended so that you're covering all your bases. You're getting slow twitch and fast twitch. So you're tapping into the, both different types plus the intermediate fiber types. And you're, you're learning to fail and you're conditioning your body to work and to fail in those different energy systems. Because when you, when you fail at those levels, now you're talking about oxygen use, potentially glycogen, you're resynthesizing ATP, your body demands go to that mitochondrial level where you can be changing efficiency there and even proliferating new mitochondria. That matters, you know, and, and I would... I would challenge you to look at things like world-class, um, st not strongman, um, thing, uh, CrossFit athletes who are doing super, super, super heavy weight, but with a lot of reps, you know, they are going to in this, what we would call medium, but medium with the caveat that this is failure in these medium rep ranges, 12 to 20 to 30, like I said, totally different ball game. A lot of people are great at failing at the lower rep ranges and they do well. A lot of people will go up to those higher rep ranges for warming up, but they don't take the time to, to fail there. So duration, I'm not going to talk about duration. Just don't spend all day in the gym. Understand. We'll, we'll cover this another time, but especially based on what's happening with cortisol and testosterone, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm just going to say that you, you need to recover. So get out of the gym within an hour or so rest between sets is something that we'll cover. Um, let me, let me get to, you know, intensity. So recall that as intensity goes up, so I'm really forcing myself into close to failure, then frequency must go down. Therefore, uh, as Schoenfeld indicates in his book, in his literature review, always training in a one to two rep in reserve ratio seems to be best. You know, if it, when I'm doing work sets, these are work sets, not warm up sets. If I'm in the one to two RIR level, then I'm I'm doing okay. Matter of fact, studies show that when you get to seventy percent of your max, there's almost no gain by going higher. So if I could do, let's say, fifteen reps on a bench bench press, but I stop at twelve or even 10 or 11, Let, let's say that I've gotten up to 70% of my one rep max and I'm, I'm stopping there with the load and the intensity, then you're not getting anything more by going to failure every time, going to a one rep max. You're just not. And so you can save yourself a lot of injury uh, potential. You can save yourself on unnecessary recovery. You know, you can stimulate that muscle maximally and then be able to recover quickly enough to do it again, instead of waiting for five to seven days, maybe in three or four. So let's let's get to this one single thing. Uh, again, I'm going to skip a lot of this stuff, but here, here's the, the take-home graphic I want to show you, and then we'll, we'll be done. So this is the classic, classic, classic illustration of, of general adaptation. So this, this axis point on the bottom is time, and this is homeostasis at the top. And right when there's this change that occurs, that's the training stimulus. So your original ability to train, you're fully rested and recovered. Here's your strength. Here's your ability to, to generate force and so forth. 
Now you train. This was that leg day. You just did this great leg workout. Um, let's say it's kind of medium. You're only doing 70, 80% of max as I described. And so there is some metabolic and mechanical disruption here, but it only drops you down this far. Then as you start to recover, there's always this, this adaptation, which is good. We want that adaptation. So let's say this represents four days. This is the peak time for you to train that muscle or that movement again, and you're going to get a positive result. But let's say I train harder and heavier like this. I really got after it. I did all 20 of those work sets in that one workout. And so now I'm way down here. I have more disruption to the muscle tissue. It's going to take me longer. Now I'm out here at five or six days. But the advantage is that super compensatory effect may be higher. And so now if I wait to, to train out here, I've notched myself up a little bit. <clears throat> So again, your choice, train a little bit less intensely, a little less disruption and train a little more often or get after it, train a little deeper, have the discipline to have some extra days off and then do it again. These both represent, and who knows over time, depends on how you apply it, who would win that race six months or a year or 20 years out. But the only thing you want to make sure you're doing is avoiding this. What if you've created this disruption and now you train again, or you created this disruption and you train again, you're just going down. Like you're, you're just, you're never completely recovering. You're never taking advantage of the, the adaptation curve. And you're just overreaching, overtraining, never getting stronger. You're just getting weaker. And eventually you'll break you, you will get injured. So when I'm doing programming for training, all of these variables that we talked about in this whole discussion are at play, but it all comes down to this. This is what's happening in real life to that human being. They're either getting the right stimulus and the right adaptation and managing this appropriately, or they're not. They're either getting progressive good results, whether it's maximal or somewhere close to maximal, or they're not. So keep in mind that that is exactly what you're after managing all these variables and you're going to see progress over time cycling in different ways, but it, it all depends again on what your goals are. And you're going to always see, we'll talk about the actual application another time as well, like programming, but um, there are a few pictures for me again, just using me as an example. My goal was always hypertrophy as somebody who wanted to become a pro bodybuilder and who was a pro bodybuilder, you know, my goals for that 20 to 30 year span of time was hypertrophy. So I had to use all those variables for that. You may be very different. Uh, if you're in physique sport, but you're perhaps a bikini competitor, then your application of that and how you translate that into real work is also going to be different. You know, we're all just that completely unique, but at the same time, we don't have different tools. We only have the same tools. It's, it's how we're going to use those. So let me uh, let me wrap up there. And again, I knew we would run all the way through this, but any thoughts or questions on this very quick survey of training variables? Any, any thoughts or questions? All right. Well, if you do come up with questions, save them for our next couple sessions, because I'm going to try to find some of the most appropriate research to really cover that. You know, we'll get into the application and training design a little bit more. Maybe we'll dive a little bit deeper into how you can manage these variables, you know, if you want to train more frequently or not. Um, I'll give you an example real quick before I, I wrap up. When I was uh, at kind of the height of my training, I had achieved a 500 pound squat. And I did that. You know, if you go back to those pictures I just had, uh, I did that almost 90% of the time, only squatting once every two weeks. My undulating periodization model was to squat so thoroughly and heavy that I could not squat even every week, let alone twice a week. 
And yet my second week workout would be very high intensity. I'm doing legs again, but I don't want the same mechanical um, stimuli, the squat. So I want to do leg press, hack squat, split squats, other things. And I wanted a different metabolic stress. So I'd use higher reps, higher intensity, but not in those same heavy rep ranges I would use for squat. So I staggered that kind of training for years to get up to a 500 pound squat. Then I hired a world record holding squatter, a powerlifting coach who still has records in the NCAA division one for, you know, strength class wins. He had two back-to-back division one college national championships. And I said, dude, my squad is 500 pounds. I'm at the zenith of my pro bodybuilding career, yet I want more. I'm going to hire you, not just to program my my training, but he trained with me. He was in my facility training with me. We did that for six months. My goal was to take my squat from 500 pounds to 600 pounds. Instead, my squat went from 500 pounds to 400 pounds. Instead of gaining strength, this world record holding, super highly decorated coach caused me to lose 100 pounds in my squat because he suggested I go from squatting once every two weeks to squatting twice a week. A 400% increase in my squatting uh, frequency. Now, that was controlled with load and intensity, but I was so conditioned to train aggressively in each workout that, and he was used to athletes who are doing the opposite. They would only do a couple working sets and then move on. They're saving some in the tank for the next workout three days later. I just couldn't train that way. I just, I wasn't conditioned for it physically. I wasn't conditioned for it mentally. I just adapted to, to do better with less frequency and higher load, higher effort. Doesn't mean that was the only way, but I not only tried working with him, I did other things in different training times and I could never get better results. So I started out by saying I would tell you where my bias is. I have applied that style of training to other people, other clients, which means deeper work, but more recovery, less frequency. And nobody ever fails to say, wow, I cannot believe how much stronger I'm getting, how much muscle I'm gaining. Because I contend there is still a line where people are overtraining. When you try to force too much intensity, too much frequency, too much load into that week, you will end up overreaching, overtraining. And so it never made sense to me to just be in the gym more often doing the same repetitive workouts, but just lighter with less consequence. Like you never even feel like you trained. Again, this is my mental approach, but I love to train, so I would train hard. And I'm not, not talking about just bro intensity for the sake of breaking yourself, but I mean, actually, I've never injured myself training, but just, you know, that was just me. And I and I think especially for people who, who are advanced lifters, as Schoenfeld even conceded, like they reach that level where you just, you need deeper work, but more recovery. But going all the way back to my original... Uh, metaphor of like an injury or somebody training just to start minimum effective dose, more frequency, more often, more, you know, getting those reps, getting that conditioning in. And then as you get stronger and you need more work, then that's where that comes into play. But let me stop here, guys. Uh, appreciate you letting me go a little over here. And then, like I said, look for the next couple research reviews to be extensions of this, where we talk a little bit more in application and programming design, and maybe some of these other frequency, intensity, load debates. So you guys have an awesome weekend. I appreciate it again. And those of you who watch this in the playback, we will see you next time as well.